another episode of Shadow Talk, an information security and cyber threat intelligence podcast brought to you by Digital Shadows, a ReliaQuest company. My name is Chris and today I'm joined by Kim. How are you doing, Kim? Welcome back. Hi, thank you. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm not doing too badly. Thank you very much. Uh, always good to be speaking to you on a Thursday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, when we usually record, of course, this goes out on a Friday, uh, but we do usually record on a Thursday. So good to speak to you, Kim. Um, I thought we could start with a brief roundup of some general CTI related updates and incidents that have happened in the last week uh, before moving on to our three items for this week's podcast. So in the last week, we've seen reports of a black hat search engine optimization campaign uh, that compromised over 15,000 websites. And that was done to redirect to fake question and answer discussion forums. The researchers believe that threat actors goal in this case was to generate enough index pages to kind of increase the authenticity of these fake Q&A sites, thus rank better in search engines. So, you know, probably for kind of future malware or phishing campaigns, but just interesting that they were managed to compromise so many of these websites, uh, most of them hosted on WordPress. We've also seen the identification of Chinese uh, advanced persistent threat activity targeting organizations in East Asia, Southeast Asia, and also interestingly, Ukraine. And it was confirmed at the same time this week that Japan has joined the North Atlantic Treaty Organization's Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence. Uh, so that's quite a a tongue twist there, but this is likely to be to enable Japan to kind of fend off many of these PRC link threats that, that we often talk about on the podcast. And I think one of the most incredible developments that I have seen this week has to be what's happened with crypto and investment platform FTX. So I joked on the, the last time I was on the podcast, you know, maybe we should introduce a crypto platform meltdown of the week. And here we are two weeks later and another major, major crypto platform having a liquidity crisis and, and basically going insolvent in a matter of, of hours, it seems. So this was the, the the eighth largest crypto exchange, FTX, and you know, really not, you know, a, a real big operation, you know, not a fish and chip shop type business, you know, huge amounts of revenue, uh, a lot of backing as well. And as far as and I and everyone else can tell, you know, uh, from the outside, at least, look to be a sustainable and well-run operation. So I'll just say, you know, kind of a heart goes out to anyone affected by this. I hope you find ways of getting your currency off this exchange. And of course, you know, we are a CTI podcast. There will be a ream of, of kind of social engineering and phishing campaigns that will probably be using this as fish bait to target individuals trying to steal, you know, what's in your wallets and credentials from, from other locations. So just to be aware of what arrives in your mailbox uh, referencing FTX. Um, use some due diligence for for anything that surrounds this event. So we'll move on to the first item of today, and that's related to a recent revelation from the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre, the NCSC, which is a government agency that leads the country's cybersecurity mission, who've confirmed they will now be scanning all internet-exposed devices that are hosted in the UK for vulnerabilities. And the goal of this activity is to assess the UK's vulnerability to cyber threats, and to assist owners of internet connected devices to actually understand and I guess manage their their security posture. So Kim, first question for you is, you know, what are the implications behind this move? You know, obviously the goal is to kind of improve our ability to respond to cyber attacks, but how do you think this move actually might be conducted? Well, the um, NCSC have said, you know, in no certain, no uncertain terms that 
this is not a nefarious way for them to be collecting people's data in the UK. It is about a program of understanding and education when it comes to vulnerabilities because throughout their different programs the one question they can't really answer is how vulnerable is the UK to a cyber attack which is a bit crazy really when they are the centre for doing that but it's it's because they haven't had the data and the evidence to be able to back up the assumptions and assessments that that we're making. So this program is all about collecting that data. So they haven't said how often they're going to be scanning the internet for all these connected devices, whether it's every day, every week, I don't, we don't know. But what they've said is they are going to start quite small with the scans that they're doing, doing simple scans, and then they will slowly increase the complexity of what they're doing. But the key thing that they have been keen to communicate is that they are every step of the way going to be explaining what they're doing and also why they're doing it. That's good. Yeah, transparency is, is always going to be key to this, right? Um, in making sure that people are aware. That that was the first thing that came to mind for me. I was just thinking of some of the, the pen testing, you know, I've seen in, in organisations where it's not made clear what they're doing ahead mm. of time and it just sets up alarm bells all over the place, thinking that it's malicious activity. I was just concerned that, you know, that would be the case for this. You know, if companies aren't aware this is happening, you know, it might set off kind of alarm bells for malicious activity. Are there any other concerns you can think of? So, you know, other than kind of false positives, you know, I was thinking, you know, potentially if there's any issues with kind of data protection or or privacy, you know, is that something the UK government's kind of thought through? Or I assume it is. Yeah, so I think they have accepted that even though their intention is not to collect any personal data or any sensitive data, that is a real possibility with this activity just due to the widespread nature of it so that they have said that if sensitive or personal data is inadvertently collected then they're going to take steps to remove that data and also prevent it from being captured again in the future so they haven't said how they're going to make sure that it doesn't happen again but you know, they are aware that there is a possibility of of privacy implications from this. Um, another another issue, I guess, is that you said businesses being aware. I think, you know, if you're on the small side of business and maybe don't have a, a f- fully built security team or cyber security team, are you going to be aware that the NCSC is doing this? Like, unless you're looking out and cyber news I'm not sure you would come across this necessarily and then also are you going to know what to do when the NCSC ring you and tell you that your systems are vulnerable so that that's another concern. Yeah having that enumeration is a good a good you know place to start isn't it understanding you know what your exposure is but you still have to factor in all of the various things that complicate a vulnerability management process so the resource constraints you know, have you got fallbacks in case patches don't work? Do you actually have the ability to update devices kind of remotely? You know, parts of the business that you can't uh, update. Um, there's all sorts of kind of question marks around that, really. But it does assist because they'll understand what their exposure to, to certain vulnerabilities is going to be, or at least have a better understanding of that. Would you say there's a risk of the, the kind of data becoming outdated 
you know, extremely quickly? You know, how are they combating that? I haven't seen anything in the press release about how they're going to combat the kind of life of the data, how long it's going to be valid for. But you and I know that vulnerabilities pop up all the time. Um, so that, again, that kind of links back to not knowing how often they're going to be doing these scans. But you would think that actually to, to be able to kin keep contemporaneous with the threat they're going to have to be scanning quite frequently and then it just makes me wonder well do they know what kind of rock they're on overturning here in the amount of data that they might be um, capturing and then how they're going to help businesses to remediate from all of that um, if it's in such large volumes Um, so yeah it seems Seems like a good thing. And you'd hope it would be thought through, given that it's a government program. But I'd be interested to see how it's how it's going in a month or two. Oh, you are so cynical. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that was my concern as well, that it's just a snapshot in time. Right. So you're going to have to repeat this process multiple times because the data will become you know, almost obsolete you know, overnight. Mm-hmm. You've run it on a Saturday, you know, a series of massive vulnerabilities emerged the following Friday. You know, that, that data is obsolete at that point. So, yeah, I yeah, wondered how they're going to get around that. Although they did did say in the press release that actually by doing this, it is going to help them better respond to the new zero day vulnerabilities that come out. So hopefully it goes into their kind of preparedness for cyber attacks. I think they, they maybe will have an easy way by then to communicate with everyone, to push updates, that kind of stuff. I don't know. Absolutely. Would you say the move is unprecedented, you know, kind of talks a good game, you know, but will they have a, a real demonstrable difference in, in practice? It is, I'd say it is unprecedented. I, I can't remember the UK government, for example, being so open about such a wide programme that they're trying to run. That's also like it's not opt in, you have to opt out. So um, it is quite um, kind of authoritative in that respect so I think we talked about this the other day but in terms of how much of an impact is it going to have it's that age-old question that you that you mentioned earlier as well like are people going to be able to implement these patches in a timely manner at, even at all if it's legacy infrastructure you know something that they just can't prioritize because of money like all those considerations and and we will still have to fall back to that risk-based approach that we that we've spoken about before and the NCSC with all good intention might tell you to patch it but in, in reality you just can't prioritize it possibility for this to make the NCSC feel like they're better prepared or have a better understanding of what the attack surface of the UK looks like but the actual reality of lowering cyber risk in business I, I suppose they're going to run into those same classic problems yeah that's interesting I, I just imagine a lot of people will receive this you know kind of like a vulnerability report back from an NCSC and they'll be like yeah great yeah we know about that yeah we're, we're fully aware <laughs> of this <laughs> yeah, we, we're not able to patch that particular device uh, but thanks though Last question on this is just if there's any methods users can, you know, kind of use to opt out of this process. So there's only one way in which you can opt out of this scheme, and it is to email the NCSC with a list of IP addresses that you want to be excluded. So the web 
website, well, not the website, the email address is scanning at ncsc.gov.uk. So they are trying to make this opt out process as easy as possible. And I've said they want, they aim to process all those opt out requests quickly. But yeah, I wonder how many people will actually want to opt out and therefore they'll be furiously updating this list of excluded IP addresses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sending lists of IP addresses over email, there's definitely nothing I can see that will go wrong there. I suppose it is a simple process. Well, yeah, but also, yeah, it's just over over regular email. Hey, look, here are all the IP addresses that belong to my infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, a bit of a question mark over that one. Anyway, that's the process you do need to to get involved with if, that, if you do want to opt out. So good to make it clear anyway. We'll move on to the second item of today. And that's down or that's to do with our uh, the, obviously, the recent change that's happened with uh, Twitter, uh, obviously, which has been purchased by Elon Musk, who's now Twitter's CEO, and he's announced plans, of course, I'm, I'm sure everyone's read about this, to revamp Twitter's verification process. And as part of the review, Twitter initially proposed to start changing, charging verified users a $20 monthly fee, and that's now been dropped to $8. I think this is actually in practice now. I see lots of people cropping up on Twitter with verified icons things people you wouldn't naturally assume would be verified otherwise but other than receiving a blue tick following successful verification users now get priority in replies you know mentions and uh, fewer ads uh, they're able to post longer multimedia content apparently i think there's so many different things kind of strengths and weaknesses to this but you know what were your thoughts on this initial move you know was this a good idea or a bad idea for you I just don't really understand it, to be honest. I don't, apart from a, a way to make more money, I mean, this is the cynic in me coming out again, but what was wrong with the old blue tick system? Genuine question. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what he's tried to do is to, supposedly it's done to limit on the amount of bots that were on Twitter, so there's a huge amount of bots. And obviously there was ways to kind of compromise like your blue tick account, but I suppose they're still going to be there whether you're paying for it or yeah. not. It's, it's, you still might fall victim to, you know, some sort of social engineering attack and your, your new verified account can still mm. be hacked in the same way that the old blue tick one could. So mm. I, guess, I guess, I mean, it's, again, good intentions trying to clean up the bots and all those impersonating accounts I think I saw online that someone was impersonating him and he he booted them off but then I like when he announced initially it was going to be twenty dollars I can't remember who it was but they were like no forget that you should be paying me to be on your platform not the other way around so like um this just might mean a lot of people that maybe wouldn't have been blue ticked otherwise can now pay to get it and then end up losing the actual sensible people on Twitter. Yeah I mean to get a blue tick you have to go I assume through like a know your customer type scenario where you prove your identity so I suppose in reducing harmful content I guess in a way that helps but then if you're going to do that sort of thing you probably won't want to do it anonymously anyway right so yeah, maybe maybe uh, you were right in your initial suggestion of it's just a money making exercise. Who knows? What do you think the impact of the change will be on the cyber risk? We've already seen phishing campaigns starting to target 
users with blue ticks or users going through that verification process, capitalizing on on fear, like always, like if you don't click on this link, then you're going to lose access to your account or your account's going to be suspended. And then taking users to a credential harvesting site to get their Twitter account details, also financial details, because there's a payment involved. So yeah, we've already seen the the fissures at it. In terms of other cyber risks, I think we've seen before where people's blue tick verified accounts have been hijacked and then used to push like crypto fraud scams and and other types of scams. So it might by increasing necessarily perhaps increasing the number of verified accounts on Twitter, you might find that you are also perpetuating people being scammed because, oh, if they're, if they're verified, they're kind of at this higher status level. So we can believe them when they say, if I pay them $40, I'm going to make 400 in return. Yeah, it doesn't add to the legitimacy of what you're saying, I guess, really, just because you're paying $8 a month I just I wonder I whether think, I think oh, people on Twitter do believe that I mean I'm not a Twitter user so this is a sweeping generalization for me but people do sort of see people with that blue tick as as someone mm. to listen to and and believe when they say stuff mm-hmm. yeah I mean why did I see it reference someone referenced you know Twitter turning into this kind of lord and peasant land where you have (laughs) people who are able to pay eight or willing to pay eight dollars a month having more of an opinion or legitimacy of opinion than the people who are just using it for free i just yeah i wonder whether it's going to turn into that um i I get i get the argument with bots though like you you mentioned crypto scams every single crypto influencer that i follow Literally every tweet that they issue, there will be an army of bots saying, follow me and, and impersonating this person. I've got the, the next top, you know, five coins to follow, just right. perpetuating scams. Every mm. YouTube video you go on from a crypto perspective, they're always trying to um, issue these Amazon token scams. Very common. So it is, it is important to get on top of this. I think there's a crazy percentage of how many Twitter users were bots. And you've seen that with the exodus of many of these accounts since Musk has taken over. So, you know, maybe it was a, a worthwhile decision in addition to what else they're doing. Yeah. Um, if, he, if he manages to clean up Twitter from the bots, then good for him. Definitely. How can users keep themselves ahead of the game from social engineering attacks uh, that are present on Twitter and other social media? Well, social engineering, you know, people are preying on your your vulnerability as a human so they are wanting to put pressure on you wanting to make you feel like you need to act quickly to to stop something bad from happening so i think the the best thing to do in these situations is take a breath and think okay what is actually going on here and then start doing your due diligence of okay how does this person have my phone number or my twitter account do I know them? Is it a legitimate person? Like, just do those, do those double checks. And, you know, with business email compromise, for example, if someone's emailing you urgently, then you ve- you verify through a different means of communication. And you can do that yourself as a social media user. 
for example, my dad texted me the other day because he had had one of those children in distress scams to his um, text to his phone. So he just he, you know, spoke to me through a different method. And I was like, no, don't pay them any money. I'm fine. Um, and then he was like, I thought it was weird because the message came at five to midnight and you never messaged me that late. <laughs> so, yeah, it's all those all those standard things. Don't don't click on links you don't trust. The usual. That yeah. word came up again. Due diligence, vigilance. These are words we say all the time on Shadow Talk, it seems. <laughs> OK, good stuff. We'll move on to the last item of today, uh, and that's the return of Emotet. So our, for our listeners, I thought I could provide a brief overview of Emotet and the law enforcement, <laughs> enforcement, <laughs> can't even say the word, enforcement attention that it received um, before moving on to the latest activity that's been observed. So I'm sure everybody has a good understanding of, of Emotet if you listen to this podcast. Uh, but in a nutshell, this is a, a malware that originally emerged as a banking Trojan in 2014 uh, before morphing into something you know much greater primarily as a medium to spread other types of malware uh, that was done by you know numerous threat groups so for example emotet was most commonly associated with tripbot as part of the infection mechanism that was used by conti uh, in addition to several other cyber criminal groups in january 2021 uh, law enforcement agencies across europe actually collaborated with authorities in the us and managed to take control of the infrastructure of the Emotet botnet. And apparently as of April 2021, uh, this was uninstalled from all compromised devices, uh, but it did return and began operating again in November of 2021. And researchers discovered um, that TrickBot was actually distributing uh, the Emotet loader in, in attacks. And this may have been orchestrated by the Conti ransomware gang, obviously we've just mentioned, who wanted to use the malware again for, for initial access at victims. So just highlighting how important uh, Emotet was to Conti, Conti being uh, one of the, the largest groups within the ransomware scene up until their demise uh, fairly recently. And we've seen continued use of, of Emotet in 2022, including the use of Emotet to evade detection as part of malware campaigns, spear phishing campaigns back in April of this year. And the recent campaign is back with um, you know several new characteristics, but also many characteristics of kind of older Emotet campaigns as well. So one of the interesting things that the researchers kind of discovered with this recent Emotet activity is um, they were still using kind of uh, macro enabled malicious office documents, which has been on the decline since Microsoft actually uh, banned the use of, of macros of this type or in, in enabling macros in office docs because they realized, of course, that this was being used as an infection me method. So many different cyber threats. Um, they're really interesting that Emotet would kind of, you know, divert back to using that sort of thing. And it's not known who is behind this latest campaign, but, you know, the who's who of cyber criminality as to, you know, who uses Emotet really. So it could be uh, any number of uh, culprits, uh, I guess. So, Kim, are you surprised at all by this move? You know, what makes Emotet so irreplaceable uh, to threat actors? It's not surprising, unfortunately. Um, even before the law enforcement takedown of Emotet, it was known for taking breaks in activity and then coming back with vengeance um so this is just continuing that pattern really i did i did find it interesting that they had reverted to that to the maldoc stuff rather because in campaigns 
earlier in the year, they had switched to using LNK and ISO files. So interesting that they've gone back to this, but I read that they actually found a way around it. So they convince victims through social engineering to move the malicious document into a whitelisted folder and then macro protection isn't enabled. So I think one of the things that makes Imatet so attractive is its durability and its innovation as well. Like every time it takes this break, it rejuvenating, it's getting better. And the the botnet now is is so powerful that the payload will always seemingly reach the victim and they, they find ways. Any barrier that gets put in their place by law enforcement or security companies like Microsoft, they they find a way around it. So kind of have to admire it really i guess so it just shows how <laughs> agile and resourceful these groups are really um begs the question is law enforcement operations or kind of takedown of infrastructure of malware this kind of thing is that an unwinnable battle or you know what realistically can be done the sad fact of it is that if you only take down infrastructure without arresting people behind it as we've seen with Imotet, those operators of these successful malwares are going to find ways to come back harder and faster. So the infrastructure takedown did have an impact on Imotet. Like it was gone for nearly six months, which is is a long downtime um, for them. And they managed to do that mass uninstall, which had never been heard of before. So that, you know, new techniques they're thinking of. Um, but yeah, without arresting the people behind it, these things come back. So it has to be a two pronged attack. Really interesting way of looking at it. And you're absolutely right. Yeah, it did. It went down for six months, right? Or even longer than that, potentially. Maybe so. longer, yeah. I, I suppose you have to just manage your expectations and thinking, OK, they've removed the infrastructure does not mean that it's going away forever. In fact, it, it probably will be returned at some point. Yeah, interesting way of looking at that. Um, great stuff. And um, thank you so much, Kim, for joining, as always. No problem. We'll just quickly mention a blog we're putting out this week, uh, which will be on the World Cup. Uh, that will be detailing all of the cyber threats related to the World Cup. So. Uh, contained within the piece is, of course, um, a lot of information regarding kind of fake infrastructure targeting um, this, this this big event. So kind of impersonating domains, um, other things like fake mobile applications, other cyber threats related to the actual event. Um, of course, I'm sure everyone's really, really looking forward to, to watching a bit of football at this very strange period uh, over over December. You know, watching a World Cup is, is kind of unprecedented. Um, but we've got everything related to a, a cyber threat perspective um, within this piece. So definitely go and check that one out. Um, that's it for today. Uh, thank you uh, to everybody for listening in. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.